Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Dr. Bill Petrie. Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Today, I want to focus on how religion has deviated from the Bible by creating traditions that the Bible does not create. Unfortunately, when we talk about anything dealing with traditions, it often entails hitting a hot button subject for many believers. And I believe that today's topic is a hot button topic for the vast majority of Christendom. I want to look at the doctrine of water baptism to show how far religion and denominations have deviated from the scriptures in their understanding of this doctrine. Many Christians fail to realize that there are a number of different kinds of baptism that is taught in Scripture. Not every baptism talks of water. We need to consider the following verse. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes to the body of Christ the following words. There is one body and one spirit even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. We can see from these verses that there is only one faith, that being the faith of the Son of God, according to Galatians 2.20. How far we err When we talk of a Catholic faith and a Protestant faith, there is but one faith. It is not a Baptist faith, a Methodist faith, or a Presbyterian faith. It is not an independent faith, an undenominational faith, or an interdenominational faith. It is the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. God never distinguished believers into different groups. God rebukes individuals when they do separate themselves into separate groups. All one need do is to just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 very carefully to see this. I myself have been blessed to be a Christian with no allegiance to any man-made organizations or in any man-made denominations. In this way, I can allow the Word of God to be my authority, not a man-made denomination. Ephesians 4, 5 states, there is only one baptism. It is on this point that most Christians often break the unity of the Spirit and fail most miserably in keeping that unity in the bond of peace. Believers for centuries have been hopelessly divided on the question of baptism. There are differences as to the proper mode 
the proper purpose, the proper subject, and the proper authority. Some immerse, some sprinkle, and some practice effusion. Most denominations use some adaptation of the formula of Matthew 28, 19, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, none of the apostles ever used as far as the Acts record is concerned. Others use the formula of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, in the name of Jesus Christ. Some immersionists are satisfied to place the candidate underwater but once, and others practice trying immersion once for each member of the Godhead. Many groups insist that the purpose of baptism with or in water is the remission of sins, just like Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and Jesus commanded in Mark chapter 16. Of these groups, some, such as the Roman Catholic Church, believe that sins are remitted when the water is sprinkled upon the candidate, whether he is an infant or an adult. Others, such as the Churches of Christ, believe the sins are forgiven only if the candidate is an accountable believer who has repented of his sins and confessed his faith in Christ. The baptism, in order to be valid, must, according to them, be complete immersion with both the baptizer and the baptized in the water. The Greek Orthodox Church practices immersion, but they immerse babies as well as adults. Baptists, on the other hand, insist that water baptism has nothing to do with salvation. To them, it is a witness to the world or a door to church membership. Mark chapter 16, which is used so frequently as a proof text by members of the Church of Christ, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, is interpreted by Baptists and many other groups to mean he that believes and is saved should be baptized. But the verse is very clear that baptism is for salvation in Mark 16. It is interesting to note that the remainder of Mark 16, however, promises miraculous healings, speaking in tongues, and other signs as proof of salvation. If our marching orders for today are in Mark chapter 16, where are the signs? Views are just as diversified on the proper subject and the proper authority for water baptism as they are on the proper mode and proper purpose. The examples of our differences that I have cited are given objectively, not to criticize or to stress our divisions, but to call attention to the great need that we face as believers, a need to go back to the Bible and re-evaluate its message on water baptism. We have seen from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that God would have us recognize only one body, that body being the church, the body of Christ. There's only one spirit, that being the Holy Spirit. There's only one hope, 
there being the blessed hope of his appearing. There is only one Lord, there being our Lord, Jesus Christ. There is only one faith, the faith of the Son of God. And there is just as surely one baptism. Since there are so many differences on this subject, we must approach it with humility and reverence, trying in a spirit of love to find God's truth for his church of this dispensation, the body of Christ. Let us note some of the baptisms recognized in the scriptures at different times. I believe the Bible very clearly talks of at least 12 various baptisms, and they are as follows. First, Christ baptizing with the Holy Spirit. We can see this in Matthew 3, 11, Acts 1, verses 4 through 5, and Acts 11, verses 15 through 16. Second, there is the Holy Spirit baptizing individuals into the body of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Third, there is death baptism. We see this, for instance, in Luke 12, verse 50. Fourth, there is fire baptism, and we see this in Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16. Five, there is the typical baptism of Noah's Ark, and you can read that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. But I want you to note as you read that, that the occupants of the Ark did not get wet. They stayed dry. Sixth, the baptism for the dead found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. This is a verse that the Church of Latter-day Saints use to support their view on baptism for the dead. Seventh, there is the baptism unto Moses that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. And I want you to note again, these who were baptized in the cloud and in the sea went across on dry land, according to the Exodus account. Their baptism was apart from water. This is obviously not a water baptism. For Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, according to Exodus chapter 14 and verse 22. Pharaoh and his army were the ones dipped into the water as it crashed down on them in divine judgment. However, it was Israel who was said to have been baptized. And the interesting thing is that they are baptized into Moses. This is a dry baptism, and it's important to recognize that. Eighth, there's the divers or various baptisms of the law. We see that, for instance, in Hebrews 9, verse 10. In John chapter 1, verse 25. Ninth, there's the traditional baptisms of Judaism. These are baptisms that are not part of the Mosaic law, but became man-made law. 
We see that in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. 10. There's John's baptism of Israel for the remission of sins. And there's a lot of passages on this. I'll just give two. Matthew chapter 3, verses 6 through 16. And Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. 11. Christ's baptism by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. We find that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. I want you to note, the Lord states that it was necessary. He does not say that it was for a testimony. It was necessary for him to fulfill all the righteousness required of the law. But it was not done as a testimony. And 12, the Pentecostal baptism for the remission of sins that we read of in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The list that I have just cited should help to clarify the true meaning of the term baptism. The word itself is simply an Anglicized form of the Greek word baptizo. What I mean by that is it's a transliterated word. We take the word from the language that it originates in and just make that word part of our own. We've transliterated it. We've made it English. Regrettably, denominational-influenced lexicons have defined baptizo as to dip or immerse. That this cannot be an adequate definition is easily seen from the list that I have just given. I want you to consider, for instance, number seven on our list, the baptism into Moses. Was a person being dipped or immersed into Moses? That makes no sense, does it? We see the same thing in number four on our list, fire baptism. In Matthew 3.11, for instance, John the Baptist said that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Was he to dip people in the Holy Spirit and fire? In Luke 12.50, Christ called his death a baptism. Was he only dipped into death? In 1 Corinthians 12.13, we read, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Are believers dipped into one body? The answer to these questions is a resounding no. The traditional denominational definition is a totally inappropriate definition. It is from this unsound definition that the whole idea of baptism as a burial with Christ in water has evolved. But the fact remains that Jesus Christ was not buried in water. No one buries people in water, except perhaps at sea, as an expedient. While it is beyond the scope of this podcast, it is interesting to note how few of these 12 baptisms could possibly be water. If you are honest with yourself, 
it is clear that baptism is not always synonymous with water. In fact, the diverse baptisms of the law, the traditional Jewish baptisms, and John's baptism of Israel for the remission of sin, and Christ's baptism by John to fulfill all righteousness, and the Pentecostal baptism for the remission of sins, have water in some of them, but some of them also have man-made baptisms. Out of those that do contain water, it is accepted by almost all Christians that they do not apply to anyone but Old Testament saints or those who made the word of God of no effect. We need, therefore, to trace the doctrine of water baptism in Scripture to find out how it is applicable in Scripture. Water baptism was not a New Testament innovation. This fact will be something new to many of you and may even shock some of you. Many baptismal ceremonies were prescribed in the Mosaic Law. The following verses should be enough to show this irrefutable fact. And I'm going to go slow giving you these verses so you can jot them down. Exodus chapter 29, verse 4. Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Numbers chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. And Numbers chapter 31, verse 23. Most English Bibles do not use the word baptism in the Old Testament passages because that word is a transliteration of a Greek word and not an English translation as we have in the Old Testament from Hebrew and Aramaic words. In John chapter 1, verse 25, John the Baptist was asked, why baptize you then, if you be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? Visibly, these inquirers were not shocked by John's practice of water baptism, as though it were something innovative. Rather, they anticipated the practice of water baptism in connection with the coming of Messiah. Where could this expectation have come from? except the prophecies found in Old Testament scriptures. We need to keep in mind, the Mosaic economy was still in force during the ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 17 declares, a testament is of force after men are dead. The new covenant could not possibly replace the old until after the death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, John's baptism was not something new. It was something part of the old economy. It was a ceremony thoroughly understood by those to whom he ministered. Water baptism did not begin with John the Baptist. When we permit the scriptures to be our authority, rather than a denominational bias, we quickly learn 
that water baptism is a ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing that pertains to the kingdom promised to the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, at the very giving of the Mosaic Covenant, God tells us what his intention in giving birth to the nation of Israel was. We read in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the following. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, pay attention to this next sentence. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God's avowed purpose regarding the nation Israel is that she is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation through whom the Gentile nations will draw nigh to God. Think about the words of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 6, he writes, But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. In due course, this will be accomplished during the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ when Israel is dwelling in her land and the nations find salvation and blessing through her instrumentality. But all of this awaits Israel's redemption. That if you will obey, then you shall be principal of the law, assured that the knowledge of sin would abound. Because of Israel's failure, she soon found herself in need of a redeemer. Thus, while the hope of Israel looked to the promised coming kingdom, the need of the nation for cleansing must first be faced. With this in mind, it is imperative to remember that of all the people or things to be baptized, it was the priest who stood foremost. Exodus chapter 29 sets forth the formula for induction into the priest's office. Two very important steps of consecration are incorporated. First, must come cleansing or purifying done by a washing with water. Exodus 29.4 states, In Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall wash them with water. And second, there was an anointing oil. Exodus 29.7 states, Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. Exactly as the sons of Aaron were the priests through whom the people of Israel could draw near to God, so the nation, Israel itself, will one day be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation through whom the Gentiles will draw near to God. It is in this light that John the Baptist appears on the landscape, preaching his baptism of repentance 
to all the people of Israel. To state it another way, John's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins in Mark chapter 1 verse 4 was a mechanism of national repentance and readiness to be the kingdom of priests God intended their favored nation to be. Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 state, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent you, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How were they to prepare for the arriving of the kingdom? Verses 5 and 6 go on to state, Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. John's baptism was the means of fleeing from the wrath to come in verse 7. We have no doubt as to what this wrath to come involved. Just notice verses 8 through 12. Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I want you to pay attention to the choice set before Israel. There was a judgment coming, and if they wanted to be the wheat that is safely carried into the barn and not the chaff, that is to be burned with fire of judgment, they must be identified as the believing remnant through the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is exactly what is stated in Numbers chapter 31, verses 21 through 24. If they want to avoid the fire, they must go through the water. Thus they would be purified with the water of separation and recognized collectively as the believing remnant in Israel, set apart as a holy nation. John's baptism became a breakthrough issue for Israel. In Luke chapter 7, verses 29 through 30, we read, and all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. 
This is the underlying principle involving water baptism and how it was associated with salvation and the remission of sins. Salvation was by faith, but the only way they could articulate their faith was by doing what God required. What God mandated under the Mosaic law was the nation of Israel to prepare itself to function as a royal priesthood. First must come the purification, then the service. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 promises Israel that they would be cleansed by the sprinkling of water. This was the necessary first step of faith in forming the nucleus of the coming kingdom, the group of Jewish believers, which our Lord called his little flock. Luke 12, 32 states, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The next stage in preparing this believing remnant was Matthew's Matthew 3.11's baptism with the Spirit. This baptism would correspond with the second rite of consecration to the priesthood or the anointing that we read in Exodus 29.7. The baptism with the Holy Spirit would impart the needed empowering for the nation's impending service. This explains why Jesus' post-resurrection ministry ties these two things together, the baptism of repentance and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. One need only to read Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, Luke 24, 47, and Acts 1, verses 4 through 8, to see this. This also explains why it was necessary for Jesus Christ to have a water baptism performed and then the Spirit to descend upon him like a dove. He was fulfilling the requirements of the priesthood in Exodus chapter 29, verse 4 and verse 7. Following the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter's plea to Israel is unmistakably a further development of John's call to repentance. Those who think this rule of water baptism somehow changed after Pentecost should notice that the pre- and post-resurrection baptisms were identically the same. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins is exactly what John proclaimed in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, and it is what Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Nothing had changed. More exactly, there had simply been the historical development of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, followed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom was no longer merely at hand as it had been with John, now the time had come to, in fact, offer it to Israel. Even after Pentecost, those who refused to be baptized stood as condemned before God, as did those in Luke 7, 30. 
For Peter declares such in Acts chapter 2, verses 39 and 40. This indispensable issue of assembling collectively the believing remnant of Israel, the little flock of Luke chapter 12, verse 32, runs all the way through the ministries of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and the 12 apostles in the early part of the book of Acts. This little flock represented the core of the governmental authority for the approaching kingdom. Those in Israel who refused to repent and be baptized to identify themselves as those who had changed their minds about Jesus being their Messiah through the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins were to be destroyed from among the people, according to Acts chapter 3, verse 23. It is very clear in Scripture. Water baptism is a ceremonial cleansing that pertained to the kingdom promised to the nation Israel. Since water baptism is associated with cleansing the nation of Israel for its ministry in her kingdom, where does the baptism of Gentiles under the commission of Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 fit in? Once more, water baptism is again demonstrated to symbolize cleansing, and again clearly associated with Israel's kingdom. Remember that the priests were not the only people to be baptized. In connection with the cleansing of lepers, Leviticus 14 verse 9 instructs, and he shall wash his flesh in water, and he shall be clean. The nations of Matthew 28:19 were of course considered unclean by Israel and thus must be baptized. They must be cleansed in order to gain access to Israel's kingdom and acceptance into God's favor. Both Israel and the Gentiles needed to be acknowledging their need of cleansing, the former in order to be worthy to minister to things of God, and the latter to be the recipient of those things. When Peter preached his Pentecostal sermon, as recorded in Acts 2, he addressed it to Israelites in verse 36. When these men of Israel were convicted of their sins, and asked what they could do to be saved, Peter's reply was, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2.38. If language means anything, this was a baptism with water that was required for their remission of sins. And I want you to note that nowhere in Scripture is water baptism used 
to symbolize a burial. Nowhere. Denominational biases read water into passages like Romans 6.3, Galatians 3.27, and Colossians 2.12, which speak of our identification in Christ, and they have thus robbed those passages of its meaning by putting water into the passage. The passage itself does not contain it. All of this was in perfect harmony with the commission given to Peter in the 11 in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Upon the receipt of this water baptism, the believers on the day of Pentecost experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit promised by John the Baptist when he stated in Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he, speaking of Christ, shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Christ was the baptizer and the Holy Spirit was the element. The signs promised in Mark 6. 16 verses 17 and 18 followed. Read any chapter in Acts to see these signs. This pattern of two baptisms characterized the ministry of the 12 apostles to the Jews. In fact, when the believers were scattered after the stoning of Stephen, they went everywhere preaching the word to no one but unto the Jews only, according to Acts 11. Verse 19, this too baptism had a specific order. Water baptism for repentance and the remission of sins, and then the spirit baptism for the signs that would follow. But in Acts chapter 10, we find a most unusual account. The apostle Peter who received the commission of Mark 16 to preach the gospel to every creature, had never preached to anyone but the Jews, as we have just seen from Acts 11:19. God gave a miraculous threefold vision to him to persuade him to go to the house of a God-fearing Gentile, Cornelius, a man who was earnestly seeking the truth. But when Peter went to his house. He did not give him an invitation to salvation. On the contrary, he made apologies for entering a Gentile's house, and he rehearsed the blessings of God to Israel. As he was in the midst of this, he stated to him, give all the prophets witness that through his name, Whosoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. This is the message Cornelius was waiting to hear. And as soon as they heard this, Cornelius and those Gentiles with him believed it and were baptized with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. Peter then remembered the words of the Lord in Acts 11 verses 15 and 16. And identified this experience of Cornelius and his household as the baptism with the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus Christ. He then required them to be baptized with water. This was still a time of two baptisms, 
But this time, the baptism with the Holy Spirit was first, and then it was followed by baptism with water. And this seems to be the pattern during the remainder of the book of Acts. As long as God dealt with Israel as a nation, he continued the sign program for the Jews require a sign, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. The very last account of water baptism in the Bible occurs in Acts chapter 18. And the same believers who were baptized with that water would go on and subsequently form a church next to a Jewish synagogue. The Apostle Paul, as well as Peter, practiced water baptism during the Acts period. But the Apostle Paul, unlike Peter, only baptized a few and thanked God that he had baptized no more. For, said Paul, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.17. Had Israel been willing as a nation to accept the Messiah, the commission of Mark 16 would have been used by these believing Jews to reach every creature, beginning at Jerusalem, extending to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. Christ would have returned in the lifetime of that generation, according to the promises made in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, a promise that was conditioned on Israel's conversion. But the Jews rejected the ministry of the Holy Spirit, just as their fathers rejected God the Father, and just as they had rejected the Son in his earthly ministry, they rejected the Holy Spirit. Stephen made this plain in his sermon. You do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now betrayers and murderers, he states in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 and 52. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the apostle Paul charged his nation with this same threefold sin. But he added a fourth, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin always, for the wrath is come upon them, speaking of Israel, to the uttermost. With the close of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul pronounced this divine judgment upon the nation of Israel and turned to the Gentiles. We see that in Acts chapter 28, verses 25 through 28. From that time forth, in his ministry, as a prisoner of God for the Gentiles, he never gave Israel priority. He never performed a miracle or a sign. And on the contrary, he left a young fellow worker sick and prescribed medicine for young Timothy. Just see. 2 Timothy 4.20 and 1 Timothy 5.23 to see this. He never engaged in external rituals or ordinances 
and he preached only one baptism. That baptism being the work of the Holy Spirit that identifies or baptizes the believer into the very death of Christ. That's Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, and Galatians 2.20, and Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. This act of the Holy Spirit, who is the baptizer, baptizing the believer into the death of Christ, and Christ is the element, and thus so identifying the believer with his Lord, is to make him a member of the body of Christ takes place the very moment one believes the gospel of the grace of God. This is the one baptism and only baptism for today, just as Ephesians 4, 5 states, which also coincides with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. This is an operation of God, not of man, according to Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Thus, we stand complete in Christ, apart from the works of men, either our own or another's. This one baptism that identifies us with Jesus Christ as members of his body was a part of a revelation received by the Apostle Paul, which he calls the secret or the mystery, a secret that had been kept hidden in God before the disruption of the world, never made known to men of other ages or eons. Just read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and Colossians 1, verses 25 through 29 to see this. 1 Corinthians itself is, of course, a transitional book that was written during the Acts period. It told its readers clearly that the sign program was ceasing in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 11. It told them that Paul had baptized a few and spoke with tongues more than all of them, but that he was not sent to baptize, according to 1 Corinthians 117 and that tongues would cease in chapter 13, verse 8. The Apostle Peter could never have made this statement, for he was sent, he was commissioned to baptize with water and speak in tongues. In fact, anyone who labors under the so-called Great Commission could never make that statement with the Apostle Paul. By his conveying, Christ sent me not to baptize. He is also telling us that the Great Commission is not the commission he, nor we, and the body of Christ are to follow. While I steadfastly maintain that the scriptures are our sole authority in this, as in all other matters, And I do not base any doctrine on church history. We do find many Christians who are disturbed because they feel that the doctrine of the one baptism 
a spirit baptism apart from water is a 19th or 20th century innovation, with none of the earlier believers holding such teaching. I am mindful that not only this truth, but also many other truths of the scriptures were corrupted and lost, even in the first and second centuries, as true Christianity was mingled with heathenism. But my heart rejoices when I find on the pages of church history a group of believers who were very active in Asia Minor and the Mediterranean area some 1,000 years before Martin Luther's Reformation who preached and practiced completeness in Christ and stressed the one baptism of the Spirit with no water baptism. They preferred to be called Christians only, but they emphasized the ministry of Paul so much that their enemies called them Paulicans. The Quakers, or Society of Friends, have from their beginning preached the one baptism of the Spirit. Roger Williams, who was for a number of years a Baptist evangelist and who may have established the very first Baptist church in America, in Rhode Island, during the colonial times, in his later years, left all denominations and became what he called a seeker for truth. He gave up water baptism and preached this one baptism. He also called the Great Commission something God never intended for the body of Christ. These cases I cite only as proof that many of God's children down through the history of Christianity have maintained this position. Today, there is no priestly nation or class high-ranking above others. God is now reconciling Jews and Gentiles to himself in one body, purely through faith in the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ at Golgotha. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 tell us that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Simply believing that and trusting that allows us to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of us staying in our position in Christ, according to Ephesians. The very instant that believer trusts that saving gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, being that gospel, he is by one spirit baptized into one body, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And thus, he is baptized into Christ by that spirit baptism, according to Galatians 3.27. There is no opportunity for water. There is no ceremony, and there is no ritual. No human rite or ceremony can consign the believer into Christ. No. The one baptism of Ephesians 4, 5 of the one body is performed by the one spirit. 
not by a preacher or a priest. The working of positional truth of being in Christ is this spirit baptism. So absolutely perfect is our position in Christ by virtue of this spirit-performed baptism that we are told in Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the celestials in Christ. We have already received all spiritual blessings and are given to us the very moment we believe. In light of such completeness in Christ, afforded to even the simplest believer, the very moment of salvation, it will soon be apparent that not only does water baptism have no place in God's program today, but to practice it is to cast an insult on the glorious, all-sufficient, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 2.20. I thank God that by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. God forbid that we should add to that one baptism, which makes us complete in him. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.